Our scripture reading for today is from Galatians chapter 2. Paul is speaking. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them... We did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life 
I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. So we are in the second chapter of Galatians. We're doing a short series on the book of Galatians, going chapter by chapter. One of the things I want to remind you of that we covered last week was that the book of Galatians is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to the churches in this city called Galatia. That's why it's called Galatians. The Galatian Christians had begun to receive an error through their fear of man that we've seen as a ma- we we saw last week and we'll see as a major theme of this book that the the prime heresy or the chief error of the Galatian church was not circumcision but rather an exaltation of the word of man over the word of God that is to say that Although it was a leaf issue or a fruit issue at the circumcision level, the real error of the Galatian church was that they began to prop up the opinion of men who seemed to be uh, religiously powerful or somewhat in, their, in a vain sense, anointed and uh, things like this, that they began to elevate their saying and their teaching over and against the pure truth of the gospel, and as we'll see in this chapter, the gospel that was delivered to the saints at the beginning. One of the chief errors that we make when doing church history, as we are going to be doing in Galatians 2, is that we presume there was some sort of debate that the church had to kind of figure out and arrive at. We look at the creeds of the second and third centuries and fourth centuries, and we think that there was a grand controversy that needed to be settled and that the church was the one who decided these things. But actually, as we're going to see today, the gospel was settled from the very beginning. And that gospel is this, that Jesus Christ, through his death and through his resurrection, he has opened up a way of life for Jews and Gentiles alike. And outside of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, there is no way to be justified with God. That is the pure essence of the gospel that Paul is reiterating here, even as he is examining this error that Peter began to engage in. And so today, as we go through Galatians 2, I want to emphasize two th- or three things. First, I want to emphasize Paul's visit to Antioch and then to Jerusalem. Paul goes up to Jerusalem with Barnabas to settle the controversy in a public sense, but as I mentioned earlier, not to decide the controversy. It's important that you see that here, and we'll, we'll try to bring that out as best as we can. Uh, after this, I want to look at how the Judaizers come to Antioch. So Paul goes up to Jerusalem for a good Christian visit to, to examine the work there, as he mentioned in the prior chapter in Galatians 1. And then after he returns, some people then follow him years later and begin to teach an error. We're going to look at the Antioch uh, church as a model for what he's writing to the Galatians. And all, throughout all of our sermon today, I want you to remember, as much as Paul is doing wrestling with publicly and through this letter, what happened at Antioch, he's saying it so that the Galatians would hear it. 
And this gives us a lot of confidence for listening as well. If what happened to the Antioch Christians was helpful for for Galatia, might not it also be, and I, I think indeed it is, helpful that what was good for the Galatian church would be good for our church here today. Not just in this city, but even in this whole country and indeed world. And so from that, I want to look at Paul's defense of the gospel. And as I say the gospel, many of you are thinking, how do we get saved? How do we become right with God? And that is absolutely true. But that, that vertical relationship, which is set right in Jesus Christ, must become a horizontal relationship with his people. And it is, in fact, Paul's interpretation of Peter's action that because Peter pulled back and withdrew from fellowship, that that removal of horizontal fellowship was a denial of vertical fellowship. That is, that is what Paul's point is in this chapter, as I hope to lay out. That, why, that is why our title today is Justification and Fellowship in Christ. They go hand to hand. I cannot have fellowship with his people without being united to him. And as the book of 1 John would say, if I love God and hate my brother, I'm a liar. That's what is going on in here. So I hope you're going to see a lot of wonderful unity. Uh, throughout this sermon today, there will be little mentions little on the, on the slides that have little verse references. And if you want to see behind you know, one, one thought or another, if I don't mention it, it'll be on the screen. And I would encourage you to look. Paul's not writing a unique letter. Although this is a specific and targeted letter, it is deeply applicable. And in fact, he's drawing upon his entire theology of justification and the doctrine of the church. So let's get started. First, we must remember what happened in the prior chapter. Paul provided in the first chapter a defense of his ministry, defense of his gospel as coming to him through a revelation of Jesus Christ to him personally. And that revelation which came to him personally was given to Paul that the grace of God might be magnified throughout the writings of the New Testament. One of the things we saw last week was Paul being the chief of sinners, Paul being actively a persecutor of Christians, shows us that God is sovereign in salvation. That Saul didn't choose to receive Jesus Christ as he was riding on his donkey on the road to Damascus, but rather that while he was on his way to murder Christians, Christ laid hold of him. That God was pleased to reveal his son to me, as Paul says. And after this, he then receives a commissioning by Jesus himself, and that commissioning is to go to the Gentiles. And as we're going to see in the book of Galatians, to bear in his, mar- in his body the marks of, su- of Christ's sufferings. That he will be one who receives in himself the very same sort of persecution that he used to mete out. And so Paul is one who's received an anointing, he's received a commission, he's been laid hold of by God, and that anointing and commission then becomes vertical, that vertical fellowship then becomes horizontal fellowship. Paul's defense of his ministry did not lead to a self-sufficiency or an autonomy. Paul did not, although he's defending the authenticity of his ministry, he's not saying this ministry was of my own uh, derivation. It wasn't, be, it wasn't from me, but rather it came from God. And as we see in these verses here, it then becomes extended out in Christian fellowship. Paul went up to meet the Christians of Jerusalem to share Christian fellowship and true communion, not to establish, but to confirm or to prove out 
the truth of his gospel. Paul's gospel, in calling it Paul's gospel, is the gospel that he was commissioned with. We're not contrasting it against Peter's gospel or John's gospel as if they are different messages, but rather the unique commissioning that he has been given to go to the Gentile uh, world and to make disciples of them. And so he goes up to Jerusalem because true Christianity desires to be united with the rest of the body. Although Paul is not going up to receive uh, affirmation from the Jerusalem church, he is going there for godly and brotherly fellowship. This is radically important as we understand our faith as Protestant Christians, why we do not look to someone like, for example, a pope as the head of the church, but rather we look to Christ as the head of the church. All of that comes from an understanding of what Paul is teaching here, that he was anointed and commissioned by Jesus himself. And although he had received that commission, he relays it to the Christians at Jerusalem, but does not do so in order to be approved of by them or to, to seek some sort of validation. There is a verification, but it's not an establishing of his authority. In verse 1, he says, After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And then he goes on to say, I went up because of a revelation. It's important to note here, most people, they read this, they hear, oh, Paul had a revelation. I'm actually, from the book of Acts, I think it was a revelation that someone else had that he took with him. And if you want to read more about that, you can look at the book of Acts. So Titus goes up with him in, in this at this time, and it says, I went up with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation, but not in order for them to give me the gospel, but to verify it or validate it in a sense. Titus' presence on this journey, therefore, proves that the apostles who were in Jerusalem at that time, before the Judaizing heresy began to, to really amp up, before any of that error had swept into Antioch or swept into Galatia, that at that time the Jerusalem church recognized the validity of Titus's discipleship or Titus's Christianity without receiving circumcision. As Paul says here, even Titus who was with me was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So Paul here is saying, on based on this this leaf of the tree issue, circumcision was not required of Titus when we went to Jerusalem at the beginning. What he's asserting here is that the Jerusalem church received the gospel from the beginning in its purity, and it is only now later that these Judaizing heresies have crept in that we have to settle it again publicly. It was already publicly proved by Titus's reception that is, the earliest days the church understood the blood of Christ to be sufficient for bringing to God both the Jews and the Gentiles alike. This is important to see here because at this point in the unfolding of the redemptive history of God in the earth, the Jews had become so self-centric, so xeno-focused, that they considered themselves and themselves alone as God's people and yet, as we read the Old, uh, Old Testament through, through uh, Christian eyes, we see all along there was always a mixed multitude. 
The mixed multitude who went up from Egypt then become, through Numbers and Deuteronomy, they become those who are all circumcised. Later on, Rahab comes in, and she's part of the city, that Jericho, that they destroy. But beforehand, she entertains these two spies, and she then becomes part of, as we see in the Gospels, even the lineage of Christ. Naaman, all of the workings of Elijah and Elisha, all of these ministries which went on in the Old Testament show time and again that there are people outside of the boundaries of the Jews ethnically who are being brought into the kingdom. And through the manifestation of Christ's death and resurrection, God then begins to unveil that mystery in, in complete, clear detail. Titus is fully received in the Jerusalem church, though he was a Greek, a Gentile, and he was not circumcised. The gospel, therefore, is that the good news of the faithful death of Christ has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. What is the dividing wall of hostility? It is the ordinances within the law. That is to say, there are ordinances, there are commandments within the larger set of God's law, which were given for a time. Paul is not arguing here of an invalid, uh, of a lack of meaning in the Old Testament law, but rather he's saying that there were certain things that were set up as a boundary between the Jews and the Gentiles, the purity laws, the food laws, circumcision, etc., which were given to them to mark them as a radically separate people from the nations around them. And God gave them for a specific purpose to purify and to keep pure them, the, the nation of Israel, socially and, just, and judicially. That is to say, the, the law gave them teachings which they ought to keep, that they would be preserved from error in meddling with or being deceived by or going away after the other nations. And as we see in the Old Testament, that the law didn't have that effect. It was done to increase sin, as Paul says. Why? To mark out all of the ways in which man could not ever come to God by keeping the law. Nevertheless, Paul is not talking about the moral application of the law, that is the Ten Commandments, the, the understanding of the law as a whole, but rather, as he says in the book of Ephesians, the ordinances within the commands. If you know what a Venn diagram, you can imagine this large circle of the law of God and inside that circle, there's a smaller circle, which is the ordinances, the cultural prohibitions, the food laws, the customs that were given to the Jews. Those are the ordinances within the commands which Paul is saying have been removed. He tore down the dividing wall, which was the ordinances ex uh, expressed in the commandments. Therefore, the reception of Titus proves that circumcision counts for nothing because nothing now separates him from these Jews become Christians, right? Paul argues in 1 Corinthians, circumcision does not count for anything. And indeed, that was proved through Titus's reception that when Titus went up to Jerusalem with Paul and Barnabas, he was received in full communion, in full fellowship, and this proves that circumcision was no longer a barrier between Jew and Gentile. This is what the gospel means on a social level. That the justification by faith in Christ's death and resurrection, which is accomplished for me to God, that that justification now translates into a social justification. 
The Jews and Gentiles have become one new man in Christ. They are no longer two, but are one. And this is exactly why Paul describes these Judaizers as false brothers. They appear to be brothers. They're in the midst of the church. They're in the activity and life of the church, but they have no reality going on. They have crept in from the outside. Verse 4 of Galatians 2, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Amazing. He did not even hear them after they made their first statement. He, he was able to, like we see him in 1 Corinthians, he was able to make a judgment, and that judgment divided between evil and good. Paul is one who is a, bearing the image of the new Adam, the last Adam. He is able to distinguish between good and evil, being anointed by the Spirit, being remade in the image of Christ. He does not waver for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Look at how important verse 5 is. He's saying, if I would have given in to them, it would have perverted the gospel so that you would not have been able to receive it. Last week, we looked at how Paul immediately begins his confrontation of the Galatian heresy of tolerating this teaching, not even just buying into it, but even listening to it and evaluating it or debating it as if it could be true, that even to do so was to tolerate error or to let error seep in. He says, we did not yield into them in subjection for even a moment. Paul uses the language here of an anti-exodus. I want to just show you this. I think this is so beautiful because it, it will show up again later in this book. Paul's understanding of the church is they are the new Israel. They are the true Israel which was always designed to be that the first Israel, the first nation, never was able to attain to. He says here that they were false brothers, they were secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom. Does that sound like anything to you? Sounds like something to me. Caleb and Joshua sneak into Canaan for the express purpose of toppling that land. And as they sneak in, they are part of the Jews, these new Hebrew people who've been delivered from bondage and are being brought by God into the promised land, a land of freedom. And this toppling of the Canaanites was not just so that the Jews would receive a place to live, but as the scriptures tell us, that God actually loved the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, and so he is giving the land freedom by bringing in the sons of God, so to speak. Paul uses this exact same language in Romans 8 to talk about the Christians coming in and liberating the world, so to speak. These Christians, therefore, the Galatian Christians, the Antioch Christians, through Christ have entered a promised land. And it is the true promised land. It is freedom in Christ. The true promised land is not having nice things and vineyards and wine presses and threshing floors and fields. The true promised land, according to Paul, is union with God, living in harmony in all the world, not just the land of Canaan. Therefore, they live in a gospel freedom, and it is exactly this idea that Paul is bringing up in. The Jews, in their day, when, they, when the spies snuck in and came back out, they tolerated listening to the ten spies who brought a bad report. And yet Paul here is saying, we did not even listen to them for a moment. Why? 
because God commanded Israel saying to them, you will never go back to Egypt. You will never go back again into slavery. We know, unfortunately, through the breaking of the law on a national level that they do go back into slavery, not to Egypt, but to Babylon. Nevertheless, Paul is making an illusion. These are like an anti-Caleb and an anti-Joshua, just like the one who denies that Christ has come in the flesh is an anti-Christ. He's saying these people didn't come in to bring you freedom. They came to bring you into subject, subjection and slavery. They came in to pervert the gospel. Paul's visit to Jerusalem, therefore, reveals that this social justification comes from a spiritual justification. In verse 7, he says, on the contrary, we, we didn't listen to them, but on the contrary, when they, the Jerusalem Christians, had seen that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that as soon as the Jerusalem Christians recognized the grace of God on Paul and Barnabas, they then extended fellowship. That when these Jerusalem Christians recognized that Paul and Barnabas had received this commission from God, that was the basis of their fellowship. That is exactly what Paul is saying here about the nature of the gospel. And that's why Paul has to confront Peter, as we're about to see. Paul here is not going to be defiled by his mission to the uncircumcised. The apostles, having recognized the grace of God which is on Paul, realized that grace in fellowship. That that recognition of grace which has been applied became realized. They recognized the grace of God on Paul, then they realized it in true fellowship one-on-one. -on -one. So after this time, Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch, and as they go, they experience great grace from God. Paul and Barnabas are doing these amazing miracles. They're having signs and wonders performed. They're preaching the gospel, and the Jews and Gentiles alike in each one of these cities are beginning to receive the gospel. At some point, Peter visits Antioch to see the grace of God among the Gentiles. Remember how Paul went up to Jerusalem to see what was going on in the Jerusalem church? Peter then goes down to visit Antioch. You have these two beautiful pillars, or towers, if you will, in the early Christian world of the first few decades after Christ's ascent, where the gospel was exploding. And these were the capitals, if you will, of the Jewish and Gentile churches. Uh, not in that they intended this to be the case. It's just geographically what happens. And so Peter goes up to Antioch, and after he gets there, some other people arrive, and we don't know exactly how long he had been there. Paul doesn't give us all of these details. But we know that after some time, Peter then began to change his behavior according to their teaching. These men come from James, not the Lord's brother who had been martyred in Acts 12, and uh, sorry, not the son of Zebedee who had been martyred in Acts 12, but we believe James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, they perhaps were not sent by him. And I think that this is indeed the case. If you look in 1 John, uh, John is writing a, a letter and he says that these people went out from us, but they were not from us or of us. They didn't have our, they didn't have our spirit. They didn't have our teaching. And they went out Otherwise, they would have stayed with us because they weren't sent out. 
This is the, the logic that I take to see. I don't think these people come from James. And the reason why is James is one of the people in Acts 15 who stands up to defend the purity of the gospel. These people begin teaching the Gentile Christians that circumcision and keeping all of the law is necessary for salvation. I think Paul is reiterating here what we read in Acts 15. Acts 14 at the tail end, they arrive in Antioch, they stay there for quite some time. I think Peter shows up between Acts 14 and 15, and then at Acts 15, these other men come from Jerusalem or from Judea. They come down and begin to tell the Antioch Christians, Christ is not enough. This false teaching then infects Peter, and it was spreading throughout all of Antioch. Verse 11, but when Cephas, another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Why is it so important for Paul to address publicly what happens in the city of Antioch? Why does he oppose Peter to his face? Does he not respect Peter's anointing? Peter had received a commission from Jesus Christ just as Paul had. Should Paul have let this one go? and chalked it up to Christian freedom and Christian liberty? Brothers and sisters, there are many things in the Christian life which ought not to be disputed. We're even told through the writings of Paul himself to not judge another minister of the gospel in how well he's doing. But here Paul himself is judging Peter based on how or what he's doing. He's not judging just content of life or content of sermons. He's judging behavior of life. He's judging what Peter has done. This is why as we've, we've been looking through for the last few weeks, even before this series, we've been understanding that judgment is not a bad thing. Indeed, judgment is always happening. You're never not making evaluations. You're never simply just letting anything happen or believing anything you hear. You're always evaluating. Indeed, it is the nature of the Christian life to make judgments. And Paul decides based on his understanding of the gospel, being aided by the Holy Spirit, that if he is to stop the heresy spreading through Antioch, he must confront Peter publicly. Look here again. Cephas began to be entertained. He entertained this teaching. And then after this, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically, very important phrase, along with him. Paul's indicating through this verse, he's saying that after these men come from James who were Judaizing, they were teaching that you have to keep the laws of the Jews, you have to receive circumcision to be saved, that then Peter believes, and along with Peter, the rest of the Jews, and here he's calling them Jews to emphasize that they're the Jews within the church. The Jews within the church follow along after Peter's error, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. You see this? Men come from James, they infect Peter. All the other Jewish Christians in Antioch take Peter's side in this matter and Barnabas joins in with them. Part of Paul's apostolic team joins in with them. Peter's withdrawal, as Paul says here, happened because, and this is a grand theme of our series, because he was fearing the circumcision party. 
Peter was afraid. He respected their opinion over and against the grace of God in the gospel. Peter's fear of man, therefore, opened the door to a practical perversion of the gospel. Paul, therefore, opposed him to his face, speaking publicly before the brothers. Verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? What is Paul saying here? It's, it's kind of confusing um, the way that he used, I think he's using language uh, in a beautiful way. But what he's saying is, if you are a Jew, but you live like the Gentiles, how was Peter living like the Gentiles? He was putting his hope in the gospel. That is how Peter was living like a Gentile. If you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, that is, you're not trusting in keeping the law yourself, how can you force the Gentiles to try to keep the law for yourself? And if you understand what I said there, the rest of this whole chapter is going to make a lot of sense because he then begins to talk in that way. Paul confronts Peter because of the severity of his error, not just that it was spreading through the church, although it was, but also because it was a fundamental and practical denial of the gospel. By withdrawing from table fellowship with the Gentiles, Peter is not straightforward with the gospel and has become a Pharisee. Peter has actually renounced Christ through this activity. How do I mean that? In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is eating with some people and they begin, uh, the Pharisees begin to come and dispute with him and say, how dare you, Jesus, eat with sinners who are not keeping the law, people who are living in sin, who are violating these things. And so Phariseeism is not just an external keeping of the law, it actually is extremely focused on table fellowship. Who is allowed to eat with me? Who am I allowed to eat with? This is what Phariseeism is all about. Indeed, this shows up again and again. One of the central claims that the Pharisees had against Jesus and his disciples was, you eat with sinners, and we don't eat with sinners. Indeed, we aren't sinners. Peter's withdrawal effectively says to the Gentiles, in great clarity, Christ is not enough for me to have fellowship with you that I'm not allowed to eat with you, you're untouchable. You're outside the bounds of table fellowship. You're outside the bounds of even hospitality or friendliness on a human level. Though washed in the blood of Christ, these Gentiles, according to Peter's activity, Peter's behavior, are still eating with unwashed hands. This was what the Pharisees said to Jesus. Why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? Peter claiming to know the gospel, says they're washed by the blood of Christ, but I'm still not allowed to eat with them. Paul says, Peter, you're greatly mistaken. That is a denial of what the blood of Christ was meant to do. Therefore, Paul repeats his defense of the gospel before Peter to the Galatians, for they are in the same danger as the church at Antioch. Again, clearly, Paul is reiterating a story of the church at Antioch in a letter to the church at Galatia. This error, which happened in Galatia, began to spread, and that's why Paul uses the exact same method and the exact same sharpness of words to correct the Galatian church. 
because they had, begin to, they had begun to tolerate and indeed even enter into this sort of Judaizing behavior. As we've seen, Paul is doing this because Peter is saying that though they be washed in the blood of Christ, I'm not even able to know them on a human level. According to 1 John, we would understand that he actually is in danger of not knowing God at all. It's, it's amazing how quickly this error happens. Paul then begins to reason in the letter in the same way that he confronted Peter. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth. He's, he's writing with a team of people this letter. Paul, if you remember from last week, Paul and the brothers who are with me. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. That's where Paul was saying to Peter, if you're a Jew, but you live like a Gentile, if you're trusting in Christ like the Gentiles do, how can you make the Gentiles try to keep the law when you yourself aren't even putting your hope in keeping the law? Going on in verse 16, so we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified, justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. This is a beautiful example of chiasm here. He's saying, nobody's gonna be justified. Therefore, we've put our hope in Christ and we put our hope in Christ because no one can be justified outside of him. Amen. And he's doing this, he's reiterating it to, to show and to highlight the death of Christ. The, the faith in Jesus Christ and the faith of Jesus Christ himself. Paul shows that the gospel is not just a Gentile-focused path to righteousness. The gospel is not just an announcement to those outside the covenant to come in. The gospel also is those who were near the covenant were never fully in. They were never truly keeping. Therefore, they also must come and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And this is not a change in the way that God has acted throughout time, as we'll see next week in Galatians 3. It is necessary to believe for even those who are Jews by birth, as Paul says in verse 15. Therefore, righteousness does not come through keeping the works of the law by the faith in and the faith of Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying here is Christ's death brought about the righteousness and therefore, we put our faith in the faithful one, the Jesus who went to the cross trusting in his Father, the one who went to the cross already perfectly righteous, never having sinned, always done positively the, the works of his Father. And so we put our faith in the faithful one. We put our trust in the trustworthy one. We receive our righteousness from the righteous one. That's what Paul is saying. It's not just the faith in Jesus Christ, or my faith which I put into Jesus Christ, but also it was the faith of Jesus Christ as he perfectly did the work of the Father. Paul then argues that seeing circumcision as necessary for salvation would mean that those who were justified in Christ would still be sinners. Look clearly at what he's saying in verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we were found out or we were discovered to still be sinners, is Christ then a servant or minister of sin? May it never be. Certainly not. Never, never could it be the case. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What, did Paul tore, what had Paul torn down? Paul had torn down seeking to be justified by doing the works of the law. 
Therefore, to entertain circumcision as necessary for salvation or necessary to be justified with God would therefore to, to be establishing the very thing that by trusting in Christ he had ripped apart. If Paul should elevate circumcision and keeping the purity laws back to life, he would rebuild what he tore down through Christ and renounce his righteousness. And this is exactly the same imagery that Paul uses in Ephesians 2. He says that the gospel is the announcement of the death of Christ in his flesh, and by by that death being received in him bodily, he tore down the dividing wall, which was not the court of the Gentiles versus the court of the Jews, It's important to understand he's not just talking about the temple, which is going to be torn down shortly. He's also talking about the ordinances within the commands. He's saying these cultural prohibitions or these cultural markers of who's in and who's out based on whether you eat this or whether you're circumcised or what have you, all of that has been torn down through Christ and all of the nations have been invited to come and join in the covenant. Therefore, being united to Christ in his death through baptism, Paul has died to the false claims of the law, and he has begun to live to God. Verse 19, for for through the law, I died to the law. How did he die to the law through the law? Because, as Paul's going to argue later in this chapter, that the law taught him he could not keep the law. The law became, as we might say today, dead to me. Right? And I think the reason that's in English is actually from the Bible. That's another point for another day. But the point that Paul's saying is here, through the law, through my understanding of the law, through my encounter with the law, through my continual recognition of the inability to keep the law, I have recognized my need for Christ. And so through the law, I died to the law. Then he goes on to say, how did he die? I have been crucified with Christ. It's important when you, this is one of the the most quoted verses of the New Testament, it's important to remember the context here. He's saying he's been crucified with Christ, not just to sin indwelling him, but actually to establishing his righteousness. We often quote this verse thinking about it as with regard to ongoing sinfulness in our lives or progressive sanctification. And it certainly certainly is applicable to that circumstance, But mostly, Paul in this context is saying that his death, which he entered into being united with Christ, had to do with asserting his own righteousness. I've been crucified with Christ, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. That is not to say that he is the source of his faith, but that his trust is rooted in another. It's rooted in Christ. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul, though dead to the law and dead to, the sin, dead to sin, has been made alive in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has quickened Paul. And though he was dead on a cross, so to speak, being united in the cross of Christ, he now lives to God. The, the resurrection that Paul hopes in at the end of his life has already become working in his life today. What a wonderful faith we have. I I know of no other faith or religion in the world which has such a beautiful understanding of our future hope being actually set active now, that the resurrection that we hope in at at, at the end of time, at second coming, actually is already at work in us, in our spirits, being quickened by the Holy Spirit. That though he was on the cross, so to speak, with Christ, by the Spirit, he now is alive to God. 
Knowing therefore the sufficiency of the atonement and the resurrection of Christ, which by the Spirit has been applied to him, Paul refuses to attempt to add to Christ's work. Notice I said, said he refuses to attempt. He could never add to Christ's work, and therefore he chooses not to do so. That is, he understands it's impossible to add to Christ's work. I can't, the, the cutting off of flesh off of my foreskin does not produce righteousness. Keeping the law even externally does not produce righteousness. Even if I were to be able to produce a, a faith of my own that would keep the law in my heart, which would never, of course, happen. But even hypothetically, that wouldn't make me justified by God. That would just make me, according to what Jesus said, just a proper servant. I wouldn't be approved by God. I wouldn't be received by God. I wouldn't be loved by God. But here, the reason Paul knows he is loved by God is because he has faith in the Son of God who loved him. How did the Son of God love him? Through his death, he delivered Paul from his inability to keep the law or to be united to God. That is the love of God displayed. And therefore, Paul closes his argument saying, in fact, the word therefore is not here, but it's very appropriate to, to read therefore into this next verse. Therefore, because of what I've just said, I do not nullify the grace of God. How was he going to nullify the grace of God? By seeking to add to it. That is what Paul is saying that Peter is demanding in this, in this uh, debate that has happened at Antioch. He establishes the purity of the gospel, of the bringing in of the Gentiles to be one new man along with the Jews to transform them both so they're no longer Jews or Gentiles, but are a new people in Christ. And that that newness of life doesn't just apply to them culturally, it applies to them person by person. That though he was dead to sin, that he, though he was dead to the law, that his hope of the resurrection has already begun to work by the Spirit in time, and now he is alive in Christ. And if he is alive in Christ, he does not need to add to Christ's work. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And it's clear to read here that what he is saying is that if there was a righteousness that could have come through the law, then Christ's death was of no purpose, but nevertheless, it is not the case that righteousness comes through doing the works of the law, but rather that righteousness came into the world. Indeed, the only righteous thing ever to have been done was that Christ died. He completed the will of the Father, and not only did he die, but he died in faith, trusting in his Father to raise him to life again. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would be given that same zeal and understanding that Paul had that we would be no respecter of persons, that we would not seek to elevate man above you, that we would not look to even great Christians around us and listen to their word when it contradicts your word. We pray, God, that you would give us the freedom of the sons of God, that you would give us a zeal for purity and a, an ability, along with Paul, to not only receive the gospel, to not only become new creations, but that you would so transform us by your grace working through your spirit that we would become like Paul and we would defend the gospel from the mighty heresies that are at work in the church today. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us to escape false gospels, whatever form they may be, and that we would cling to Jesus Christ, for he is the one who loved us. Amen.